Onika Phillips is a burst of energy. She has the type of personality that can light up an entire theater. And she does. Quite often. Onika has been dancing from ever since she can remember. Born in Guyana and raised in Grenada, Onika was exposed to musicals via her parents' VHS collection. Jesus Christ Superstar was her favorite. Onika's colorful personality and obvious talent and love for dance led her to attend university in Virginia. She admits that those years were not always the most joyous. However, what they did was allow her to look within and discover things about herself that would prove useful both in life and career. Having lived in the Caribbean and East Africa, Onika for the first time was the other. Instead of crumble under the pressures of that title, she embraced it and became just that. Onika separated herself from the pack with positive thinking and an unbelievable work ethic. Onika continues to be the other. She is exceptional. That little girl who fell in love with musicals in her living room in Grenada is now a celebrated actor, dancer, and singer on theater's biggest platform, Broadway. Onika has graced the stage and appeared in several of Broadway's best shows in recent times, including Fela and West Side Story. Being a part of such productions has been rewarding enough. However, Onika has had the privilege of being a part of two casts that have won Tony Awards. In addition, she has danced with some of the best dance companies in New York City. Onika embodies success, wrapped in a spirit of joy and humanity. She sees her purpose as larger than her individual accomplishments. She does it to encourage, to remember, and to inspire. She does it for Grenada, the Caribbean, the ancestors, and for the culture. Even though she has done and accomplished much, Onika is not done yet. This is the story, thus far, of Onika Phillips. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. is a Broadway actor, dancer, and singer. Onika Phillips, welcome to hi. Planet 30. Hello, hi. Onika here. Thank you so, so much for having me, albeit in the midst of this movie we've all been casting uh, uh, that I was never paid for. <laughs> that that movie that is COVID, I am thrilled, thrilled to be here talking to you. Or as they say in Europe, COVID. Who said that? <laughs> fire them once. Fire them the same way we fire in 2020. Man. I <laughs> we love fire it. in whoever saying that. Well put. <laughs> this movie we've all been casting. All been casting. What is happening? Still- okay, well, we are here. But we are here. We've been chosen for a reason. For whatever reason, when we decided to come on this journey called life and our spirits descended down 
into our bodies, we made the choice. So here we are. Here we so are. So obviously, we, we are where we're supposed to be. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, One time. <laughs> so, Onika, your IG yes, is Dragon yes. Passion Fruit. Yes, it is. At Dragon Passion Fruit. Where does a name like Dragon Passion Fruit come from? <laughs> So it was one of those tentative joins, right? And um, uh, uh, when IG was becoming a thing, I, I I jumped on the platform because it was being so encouraged by my industry and the performing arts, right? And at the time, I was kind of just feeling it out. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want people to know my name, right? I Not realizing, like, it's, <laughs> it gives your entire name once you include it in your profile. So I just thought about the things that kind of mean a lot to me. And the dragon is the only mystical creature on the Chinese um, calendar. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I am born in the year of the dragon. So I also have, I connect with the sort of general overlying descriptions of what a dragon are. And I don't mean vex and burning down everything. <laughs> although, although. <laughs> it's not outside the realm of possibility. Okay, exactly. <laughs> right? But really, more that um, dragons not only have a mystical power to them, but they are, they are powerful creatures. But they tend to come, and this is in broad line storytelling, they tend to come with one, one, um, what do you call it? Uh, shortcoming and that is a, a scale that is loose that tends to be penetrated right this is how you you know you see them in the movies with these big arrows right mm. and and what i find is that i'm very protective of myself of my space my art my dreams and i let so many people in but so many people in and usually it's people that have been on the journey with me since i was a child um, and what I found happen is sometimes when I do place myself in that vulnerable position, that scale gets penetrated. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I love deeply and I hurt deeply. Uh, but what is the thing I read the other day, which is just like, you know, if it was on a basic journey, you would have basic problems. Ah. So appreciate the fact that when... You see, when I feel things, I try to appreciate even the heartfelt, difficult, heartbreaking moments. Though that's hard to do at the time, it always turns out that there's an essential lesson for me either to let something go or improve something about myself. So that's where the dragon comes from. Passion fruit is easy. That is like my favorite fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to be. And, Go ahead. Well, I, I, bet, I bet you're going to say it. So, but it also is. I love the word passion, right? Mm-hmm. I love that word. It, it because it, it's it's actually a spectrum of emotions, passion, and um, you know, I am the fruit of my mother's womb. So here I am. Very dragon deep, passion fruit. Very deep dragon passion fruit. <laughs> now you have a hairstyle that I absolutely love. Yes. It's bold, it's confident, and you know when you see a business card, it, it tells you something about the brand? And yes. so it, yes. when I see the hairstyle, I see that brand Onika is strong and 
confident and she knows who she is. Now, where does that confidence come from? And can you speak to the importance of being you? Being your authentic self is absolutely necessary when you're pursuing your purpose. If you hide behind anything else, if you hide behind a persona, a character, a way of behavior that is not you, that is not going to survive the long term. And very often that journey of purpose and passion is long term. So I found um, when I first came to the States, I was so untethered. I mean, I had lived, I would call it an idyllic childhood, right? Through O-levels, through A-levels, that's um, two Caribbean exams, uh, ordinary levels and advanced levels. And then we moved from Grenada to East Africa. Really? And from, yes, yes, I lived in Eritrea. My father was stationed there with the Food and Agricultural Organization. Um, And then I came to a a small school in Virginia called Shenandoah University. I went to their conservatory to do uh, dance performance as a major. And then I also double majored with um, a business management at their business school. And when I came, it was the first time I was detached from my family and my very, very tight unit of friends. And I was far more untethered than I ever thought I would be book smart, but not very street smart. And uh, culture shock, right? Now I understand culture shock is not like you walk off the plane and you gasp. I'm shocked. It is something that is deeply, deeply emotional and mentally draining. Because I'm not a black American, right? Mm-hmm. I had gone to school in a small town uh, called Winchester, Virginia. And uh, this was the, the late 90s. And you could feel tensions even then. You know, you walk into the cafeteria and there was a way of seating that you understood. Okay, if you're a dancer, you're going over there. If you're a baseball player, you're going over there. A basketball player, you're going over there. A hockey player, you're going over there. And... Um, and I was just lost in it. It was like a, a, like a hurricane mm-hmm. where I was just being tossed around, right? Because I was trying to get my grounds and bearings. And this is just before the explosion of the internet. So you're talking about still buying um, phone cards. You're talking about trying to reach your parents who live in, the, you know, the, the, the eastern side of Africa, hours and hours away. So I'm talking to them like two in the morning, right? And these phone cards are getting eaten up and I'm not in touch with my other friends that have gone to other schools. We're still letter writing. Um, and it was uh, devastating to me. I also was the only black student in my class, in my dance class, and one of very few black students in the business class. And um, also learned quickly that... You know, in in the context of Grenada, it was a big fish in a small pond. And you come to the United States of America where everybody wants to come to pursue their dream. And certainly that dream of professional dance performance, I I was fortunate at the time because ignorance is bliss, right? I did not realize all that was stacked against me. It just was not in my periphery. And that is, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm an immigrant, right? I don't know um, African-American culture, uh, uh, you know, per se. 
I never lived away from home. So it was a, a very trying time. But I, what I can tell you where I discovered that I needed to be my authentic self was for the first two years of school. I wasn't, I kept trying to fit in to one of those groups, right? I kept trying to figure out, well, okay, maybe if I'm more like this, maybe if I'm more like this, maybe if I try this, try that. And it was always like a square peg in a round hole. And then I just remember my junior year, uh, I looked in the mirror and I was like, what are you ass you doing? What are you doing? You, you're going to be, you, you're just going to keep getting blown in the wind like a plastic bag in the wind if you cannot stand in who you are. And I just had this moment of reclamation, right? I wanted to reconnect back to home. I wanted to find my friends. I wanted to find that network that had always been beside, under, and around me. And that's what I did. I made it less of a less of an issue about fitting in where I was and standing in my unique self, right? And this, again, being a small school, they didn't have a lot of Caribbean students. And I realized that is one of the most fantastic things about me. My Caribbean heritage, I don't need to put it away. I don't need to put it on a shelf. I don't need to tone down my accent. You understand? I don't need to tone down my enthusiasm for life. Because when you are your authentic self, what happens is you, you, the life that you live kind of weeds out the people who are asking you to be who you are not. It, it kind of just happens. You feel it. And so, I mean, all the way up to shaving my head. Right, it was certainly a reclama uh, reclamation of my natural hair. I had completed Sailor on Broadway. It was one of the first shows where you had to wear your mic in your hair, and at the time I was texturizing my hair, um, which is not quite straightening but relaxing the curl. And this microphone was breaking my hair apart. And I just decided, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to start all over again when I'm done with this show. And I went in for a consultation and the guy, this was when the natural movement was kind of just moving into its power. And he spoke to me about natural curl products that you can use. And there was no need for me to put a chemical in my hair if, um, if I knew how to take care of my natural hair. And I said, boom, let's go for it. Let's shave off the sides. I won't be afraid anymore to walk with it. And much of that, much of that empowerment came from being a part of Fela. But it was also an extension of a personal transformation and, and intent that I've made for myself starting at university about standing in my authentic self. And it's hard because the world often asks you to tone yourself down. Mm-hmm. And I have just gotten to places where I more understand my personal way of, of manipulating myself to, to any situation that does not require in a, a, a lack of authenticity. Um, and so that's reflected, that's, that's reflected in the look, uh, certainly, but there's also a whole lot behind getting to that place, getting to that place of making a statement, you know, every time you walk into a space just by your hairstyle alone. Mm. You were touted as the first Grenadian on Broadway. 
How did growing up in Grenada influence your love of the arts? Oh, wow. Um, I So I was actually born on Guyana and moved to Grenada when I was very young. Our, our entire family, my mother's side of the family is from Guyana. My father's side is from Trinidad and Grenada. Mm. And my father was born in Trinidad but lost his father very, when he was very young. And his grandmother, the, I mean, excuse me, his mother, my grandmother, the Grenadian, packed her skates up and took all those children back to Grenada. So daddy grew up uh, in Grenada as well. And then we left Ghana when I was rather young. And I was naturalized to Grenada, my father being Grenadian and my grandmother being Grenadian. Um, so my love of the arts actually started in Ghana. I was placed in the Guyana School of Arts at a very young age, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. I mean, you want to talk about dragon energy? I have had that energy since I danced out of my mother. So uh, <laughs> they put me into the Guyana School of Dance, which was an exceptional um, uh, facility at the time. They used to do brilliant exchange programs with Cubans, right? And Cubans have immense arts programs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I had to leave Ghana and go to Grenada. Now in Grenada, I was a member, long time member of the Grenada Dance Workshop. And I would say what was fostered there was the it, right? Because it's a small school uh, of, of mainly close friends performing folk uh, dances, and some modern, some jazz, as best as could be taught. But there was definitely a breakdown when it came to the teaching of the technical aspects of things. Um, because it's just a feeling that existed. It used to be the same with sports, but now all of this has opened up. But it's just a feeling that existed where you couldn't find people that were trained beyond a certain point. So that was the only training they could give you. But gosh, I love this thing. I to go into a rehearsal, rehearse the whole day, and then do a show and listen to our audience's appreciation. I love this thing. And I loved dancing. Dancing, I like to say that dancing, unlike normal movement and interaction, when you lift your hand to the sky with a dance, your, your body needs to feel like it's touching the edge of the universe. Mm. Right? And so it's like, you every to me when I'm dancing, I'm dancing with something bigger and greater than me that is asking me to stretch myself beyond my limits. And I, I, I suppose I understood that intrinsically from the emotional uh, contentment that I had performing. But now you know, older and sitting in it, and also feeling my body get tired. You know, you understand that's because. You're being asked to reach the edge of the universe every time you get on the stage, right? Um, so I would say that love was born in Guyana and then nurtured in Grenada. And it was specifically nurtured because just about every single person that was in those dance classes with me is still a friend today. Still a friend today. Wow. We learned incredible discipline about what time to be where we were going, our behavior in class, uh, attention to choreography, and we created some really fantastic friendships. I'm talking about being aunties to these women, children, godmother, 
you know, made of honor, still best friends. This is just a group of, of women who connected through dance and through movement. Um, I was the only one that went on to do it professionally. But the joy of it was because of the people who were beside me as I was coming up. That is where that was nurtured. And then I, I just felt, I'm telling you, something bigger than me whenever I was on stage. And I think, you know, the industry calls that the it, the it factor uh, in terms of getting people to look at you and be gra- gravitated to, to your movement and to your choices, your stylistic choices, the way that you make the audience feel. All of that was really blossomed in Grenada. I mean, and it's incredible to me reflecting on it because it's really something special and unique to realize that it was about the relationships around me uh, that helped really sustain that nurturing. And then secondly was the actual dancing, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that question because that reflection is, is... is very important to me. No, Dancing is exhausting. It asks you to, 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 to push yourself each and every time. And that's why you have young people who get into it and then they're no longer interested because, you know, you're 15, 16 years old and exhausted. The burnout is exhausted. real. The burnout is, is so real. And I think what has always kept my fire lit are the people around me who said, you could do it, you know, you could do it. So important. So your, your tribe is so um, important. Tribe is everything. Mm. Whether you're talking family, blood, or whether you're talking friends who become family, tribe is everything, absolutely. Tell me about growing up in, in Grenada uh, in general. I know you spoke to it a bit earlier, you know, your mm-hmm. Caribbean upbringing mm-hmm. and how, yeah. how you embrace it later on. But what are yes. some of the f- yeah. fond memories that you have of, you know, just other than dance? Just, uh, you know, my entire existence, and I'm so privileged to to say that I had, I made fantastic friends, people that taught me trust early, uh, and their parents were fantastic human beings. And anytime any of us was with one parent, they became that parent for the day. And they just ensured that we were certainly outside children, right? There was a, a, a freedom that I'm not, I mean, I hope that it still exists there now, but there's so much more to be worried about, but there's more traffic or people just doing terrible things. But there was a societal trust that is invaluable. And so every time I was around these people, it was just electric joy whether we were just walking the avenue that's where i used to live whether we were on granite beach that's one of the most beautiful beautiful beaches in the world <laughs> um whether it was you know having sleepovers whether it was my my schools were fantastic my teachers were excellent i um i thrived in school i liked the discipline of school um, That's a very rare thing. <laughs> I, you know, again, I, I just think that it was an innate thing for me. And I truly, and you know, in life, as, as you become adult and you start adulting, the world can lean very heavily in 
on you and what is innate and you can feel the energy drain from you right um but it was just something that was put into me without me even realizing that i had uh trust from parents and teachers to be my best self and it called i was called to be my best self all the time whether that was performing whether that was in school to the point where you know i was i was hard on myself and i did go through a point of uh you know people pleasing a little too much with my teachers and 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 parents and so on um but i i i grew out of that and realized that oh no i actually thrive in seeking excellence and um it just made for an idyllic childhood and my, you know i have to really commend my best friend her name is astra benjamin and her mother luna benjamin um and then another second mother jennifer woodruff they were just so they just welcomed me into their families as though i were their children so if my parents were hard pressed about things like spending the night or you know going for a drive somewhere and they're not present they always advocated for me you know and um so i always felt included i i felt joyous i felt joyous as a child and it you know on top of that is one of the most beautiful islands um in the world it it is just so scenic it's called greenada for a reason it's green and lush and surrounded by gorgeous blue water and and all of that impacts you you know even from my classrooms in secondary school you know you look out the window and you're looking out onto this beautiful blue water with a mountain scape in the back it was it was incredible and i i don't take for granted that that is not a lot of people's story right mm-hmm. and of course i had um issues and and uh, moments of disappointment or hurt that that happens as children coming up you know friendships make friendships break friendships etc so forth um and and some other personal difficult journeys but for the most part you know if i had to define my childhood in one word it would be joyous and again that's that is absolutely stitched to those relationships that i formulated in my dance school awesome stuff awesome stuff <laughs> green era green era greens <laughs> Now, what was the dream before Broadway or was it always Broadway? You know when you're coming up in secondary school, mm-hmm. you know one of the things in the Caribbean is that the arts a lot of times people don't push the arts. They don't encourage That's the right. arts. Right. You know, yeah. so was was yes. that always a dream or I think it was always a dream. I think since I was about 5 years old I knew I wanted to do this thing for as long as i possibly could and i would look at alvin ailey videos i would look at music and i would be like just enthralled at 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 what i was seeing and i felt like it became a part of a dream and i'm going to use the word again but it was innate it was it was like fundamental to who i am so i didn't even see it as that right and so of course that same conversation of you know what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up and i started saying lawyer so i think that dance and performance was so 
it became such a fundamental arm to who I was that I didn't even really recognize it as my dream to say it was almost like that's what I'm going to do. But I didn't define it as a dream. I didn't define it as a goal. I didn't know what it meant to do that. And then you have that Caribbean experience where, I mean, I was encouraged. I was, um, you know, people were very proud of me, but it was always like, well, you know, you can't do it forever. So I started to say, okay, I, I want to study law. And I, I was, I was, in fact, I still am quite interested uh, in the practice of law, uh, particularly contracts and negotiation. So that would have been entertainment law. Um, Once you're in the entertainment and art space, that's exactly what you want to do if you want to become a lawyer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, but I actually went to a workshop in Trinidad one summer, a summer dance workshop, and it just so happened the chair of the dance department of Shenandoah Conservatory was in Trinidad on sabbatical. Mm. And she saw me in one of the classes as the program was put on uh, by my, excuse me, my god sister. And she asked to speak to me. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Bateman. And, and she said to me, she said, what do you want to do? And I remember feeling a push that I wanted to say, oh, I want to be a dancer. And I said, oh, you know, I want to study law. And she goes, are you sure? She said, because you have an incredible amount of potential and I can get you into a university where you would not be pushed to the back of the room. She was like, your potential is fantastic, but you need to improve your technique. And it was the first time that there was something real in front of me as to what next steps would look like. Valid because other validation. than that, it was, it was validation and it was a way, a route, right? And, that, and that's been a really fortunate part of my career as well. I come into the people that either see my potential or my character, that authenticity we were talking about, Mm-hmm. And figure, I want you to be a part of this vision. Like, I want you, even if there's work for me to do, even there's things I need to work on, they see the potential even before I do. So I have been saying lawyer, and what this uh, dance department chair of a university somewhere out there in Virginia did for me was give me a real door to walk through, to start making, to start believing that dream. Right, um, and so in the midst of all of that, we moved to East Africa, and I remember having dinner with my parents one night, and I just blurted it out. I want to go to school for dance performance, and they kind of both looked at me and put the knife and fork down, and it was almost kind of like they knew this moment was coming, and so they were not unsupportive, but they did talk through the pros and cons with me. And one thing that daddy said, because it's always daddy to leave the advice that don't leave you, uh, which was, okay, you know, this is part of your becoming an adult, which is you make choices and you live with the consequences, whether those consequences are good or bad. And it was an end. It was, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And my mother was uh, 
concerned, and uh, she encouraged me to do a minor uh, of some kind, and and that turned out to be a double major. With that's how come I ended up doing the, the double major in business, uh, graduating with a business degree. And how important was that uh, for you to do? You know, uh, a lot of times people in the arts they mess up on the business side. So I, I found it very interesting that from, you know, I would obviously would have been your uh, late teens. You had the wisdom to apply yourself to both disciplines. Mm-hmm. Speak mm-hmm. to that a little bit. I am really in debt to my parents for encouraging me to make that choice to take on that challenge. And uh, me being me, I was just like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to excel at it. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to make this happen. And then that door, through Elizabeth Bergman, the chair of the dance department, she said, okay, let's talk about what your examination marks look like. Let me speak to the um, registration office. Let me understand your school system. What can be transferred? What cannot? And then as it turned out, I could double major in both. And I would not give that up for the world. And in fact, it teaches me that uh, universities need to incorporate a finance and business accounting <laughs> a facet to dance education, to performance education. It's essential. Or else you're not going to understand contracts. You're just going to be very excited about the offer. You're not going to, to understand your position and power to negotiate. You're not going to understand market value and what people should be paying. You're just going to be so happy about getting a job. You're going to sign your contract. And I see that all the time. So actually, when I left uh, university, I had to complete a, an internship. And that internship was at CNBC. And that's because I found the damn thing myself <laughs> in marketing. And I had an excellent experience at uh, CNBC, but they weren't hiring uh, for their marketing department. They weren't hiring in-house. They worked with a, a company, uh, an outside company. And so when I was done with my internship, my manager, the manager of my internship, she got me an interview with that company and they hired me. And I became a first, a what do you call it? An uh, a, a manager's assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked my act off to become a, a manager of accounts so that I was leading my own account. Uh, I loved the job. I loved it. It was electric. It was useful. Young people, exciting, just getting, you know, overhauling to a, a virtual space and, and the internet and so it was really thrilling, and it was I especially excelled in uh, marketing and promotions, particularly cross marketing. You know where brands put out promotions together, and uh, that experience taught me to sit and read those tedious contracts, right? Hmm. Because business is business, and it is called show business. For a reason. People forget Show the business, business part sometimes. That's right. They get, they think lights, they think, you know, marquees, uh, cameras, but it's a business. 
this is a for-profit operation and I am my own brand and, and uh, you know, truth be told, you can understand that, but until you're in the midst of it, you don't truly get it. So I, that, the fact that I had an opportunity to learn how to speak and engage in environments of business exchange, sticking to the facts, what are the facts, and how do I use those facts for my benefit? That helped me tremendously. I'll, I'll share a story with you where that came in. Very important. My very first Broadway show, Sailor on Broadway. Incredible show. Um, so well received. The story of Sailor Kuti from mm-hmm. Nigeria. Musician and rebel. And activist. And I had to make this tough decision. I had been working on another show to play Anita in West Side Story. I had been working for two years to get this role, and I finally got it. And because Murphy's Law is the way it is, I also got an offer to do the off-Broadway show of Fela. I had worked so hard on Anita. This was such a hard choice. I, I chose to do Anita, and that was, that was a fantastic choice. And when I came back to the city, it just so happened the show was looking for an additional cast member. And I say, oh, hell no, this is not missing. This is not missing. So I went to this audition. They must have seen about 200 women the day. Ooh. And they picked me. Wow. They picked me, right? Um, I, Guilty Jones was the director and choreographer. And uh, after my audition, he came to me and he spoke to me because I've had a working relationship with him in some of the workshops. And he spoke to me about what was required and what was needed. And I said to him, I am here for it. To be a part of such a magnificent show as my Broadway debut, I'm here for all of it. Fast forward to joining the union. When you're a part of a Broadway show, you have to join the Actors' Equity Association, right? right? Which is the performance union. Which is the uh, equivalent of SAG for the, fil- for the film industry. Correct. Correct. Right? And I went up there all skippy happy. I got my contract. I'm on my O one visa. I'm feeling so fancy because you know those O ones are very difficult to acquire. And uh, I went up there, and the gentleman said to me, "Okay, you just need to see your uh, passport or your green card." And I said, "Here's my passport." And he goes, "Oh, you need an I mean an American passport." As it turns out, because hello, it's a union. The union only lets in permanent resident and citizen. Right. You need to have at least a green card. Not even the O one visa can get you in there. Right. I could not believe what I was hearing because without that paperwork, without joining the union, you can't go to rehearsal, you can't go to the theater, you can't go to anything that the union touches. You cannot because you're non-union. And the producers cannot take you on as a liability. And I remember walking into the company manager's office, uh, office and the, the producers were there, company management, stage management, and they were all like <laughs> faces to the floor, just could barely look me in the eye. And I said, you all have to give me an opportunity to speak to the union. You have to. And 
I just followed that advice that was given to me in my first marketing interview. That gentleman said to me, stick to the fact, leave the emotion out of it. When it comes to doing this job, you want to have your facts in place because when you're talking to a client who is perturbed, disturbed, angered, and annoyed by a loss, you need to have your facts in place. The emotion of it is not going to to serve you in any way. He said this to me in my interview. I've never let that go. Now, performing is a very emotional thing, but that's exactly why it's called show business because the business part of it is all the facts. And I put together a hell of a letter, a hell of a statement. At the time, the producers were giving us cameras to record our experience backstage. I put together a short video and I wrote them and said, I am the woman that was selected out of 200. That is the fact. The fact of the matter is that entire creative table looked at me and selected me. Mm. I am in a unique situation of being a Caribbean woman that has close connection to African rhythm and, and movement. And on top of that, I have done some of the work before. I actually originated a role. Put this in a letter. It went to one person and then to another person and then to another person. You know how these things are. The longer it goes, the least likely it is. Yeah. Every day, I my heart beat is behind my ear, beating hard in my throat. Are these people going to tell me I have to get a green card? Now, the other thing that was to my advantage is Nicole, same Nicole DeWeaver, our, our uh, colleague. Yes. <laughs> she, had, she had gotten an exception, which the union can give, but it's usually a year long. And they usually do not give shows more than one. And I spoke to that. I spoke to her talent and why she was selected and that I was in the exact same position. Now, because... I could write a certain way, speak a certain way, understood the pressure of negotiation, of what you need to do when that emotion rises and you need to keep the facts in front of you. About two and a half weeks later, I think it went all the way up to the, not quite the president, but somebody just below. Mm -hmm. And my agent called me and said, I don't know what she did but they are giving you this allowance. They will let you sign the contract. They will let you be a part of the show. Won't he do it? It's, I mean, <laughs> and if you want to talk about a story, this is the thing. When you add being an immigrant on top of pursuing a certain dream or goal or intent for your life, it's no joke, especially if you're looking to do it legally. Because it is expensive. It uses up so much of your time the visas only last about three years, so by the time you get it, you might as well start prepping for the next one. Mm. It is a hell... <laughs> it is one hell of a journey, and it takes exceptional tethering to your authentic self to push through and get it done. Because on top of that issue, you have the industry in and of itself, which is very emotional, as you know, 99 no's before the one yes. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. Right? So it just, it, 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 it takes a hell of a lot of tenacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
A lot of tenacity. Onigo, what, and give me three words. What does dance mean to you in three words? Greater than self. Mm, I love it. Greater than self. And that is connected to that idea of reaching to the edge of the universe. It requires you to push yourself further than you think you can each and every time. Each and every time. The body and the spirit and connected. And you look, the, the body and the spirit, the heart, the mind, you will be on stage and look absolutely flawless and then get into the wing and crumble. Crumble. I call it the magic curtain, right? That line between off stage and on stage, right? right? If you're feeling sick, if, you're, if your parent has died, if you're in the midst of a divorce, all of that is before you cross the magic line. Because once you cross the magic line, now you have to be a, a superhero and complete an entire ballet looking as though it didn't take very much out of you when it takes Everything. years off of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So greater than self. That, that, that is what, that is what it means to me. And it's interesting because these questions are really, they're timely and also troubling for me <laughs> because, because <laughs> my, you know, my body is tired this situation with COVID has proven that the vulnerability of the industry, yes, which just means your brand is, is vulnerable and your wealth building yes. is vulnerable. Yes. Both, so are, both it, are definitely it, affected. Exactly. And so while I feel that this is what dance does to me, there's also the realistic aspect of existence mm. which is you need financing for everything that you do you need to build wealth you need to 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 it's so that because i don't do the starving artist thing i just i'm not made for it right that was a promise i made to myself if i was doing the starving artist thing sayonara is a whole lot of other things i could be very good at right that's see that's the business side of you now <laughs> That's it. It's. I mean, it had a bone to be because I love it, but I will not. I absolutely will not kill myself for it. You know, some people say, no, and I mean that, no, no, no. And, and I mean that, I mean that even physically, I won't, I won't, because you are instantly replaceable. And that's interesting and good to hear because a lot of artists make you feel as if you're lesser than if you don't go at this thing, you know. All the way, all the way till till death. Even if it kills me, I'm gonna, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of sacrifice. I'm more a fan of investment. Ooh. So that means Gems. that if I'm doing this thing, it is an investment in myself. It is for my upliftment. It is for my growth. It is for my like. I'm not interested in being a martyr. Mm. I would be an advocate for the arts. There's no doubt about it. But if I am falling apart, and mind you, this is me talking to you with two spinal surgeries behind me, Ooh. right? I feel like I can be, be an advocate for the art, but you just have to know when. What Kenny Rogers say? 
know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. That is, listen, that is it. Now, for anybody who decides, who figures that a part of their purpose is that martyrdom, is that sacrifice, I respect them. I respect that choice because that is how they live in their purpose. Mine is excellence. I need to bring excellence to the table, whatever room I'm in, whatever show I'm in, however small the role. I need to bring excellence. So I'm about honing, practice, improvement, and growth. Mm. When I I hit a ceiling and I'm not feeling that expansion for me and my art and myself and my soul, for them, that's me. That's my journey. And it just so happens it's been a long and fruitful one. Right. right. So I, 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 while I, I respect, I know that so many people enter into the arts understanding that, you know, I may not live richly in money, but I will live richly in my art. Um, I love that. I, I really and truly respect that. But I am my own brand. And if I destroy my brand, then what do I have to give? Whew. The gems, the gems. So, Nico, what was your feeling? Describe to me how it felt. The first time you saw a Broadway play live and the first time you hit the stage, like that first opening night of Fela. I want you to describe those two feelings to me. I'm sitting here trying to remember my first Broadway show because I was a concert dancer first, right? So if you think of companies like Alvin Ailey, uh, Dance Theater of Harlem, Forces of Nature, um, Out of Harlem, so that, that concert dance, that means there's no singing or acting. It's all ballet every time you go to a show. Right. And I, I, I mean, I was always gripped by certain companies and being at the university, being at the conservatory, they would take us to performances in BC at the Kennedy Center. Mm. So one of my first experiences of a live company was a company called Moment, an exceptional modern dance company. It's so out, outside of the box. Uh, they are very, uh, the movement is so visceral. And they build these palettes through the unique use of props. Oh, I was blown away. I was like, I have to, have to be on the stage. And I'm here, and now I'm thinking of, I know I can recall that first time seeing a dance concert, professional dance concert, and that feeling. But now it is, I'm really racking my brain to remember my first, Broadway show, which is insane because most of the, the most of the kids in music theater they remember that. But I think what matters is that feeling that went through me when I saw this first professional dance concert, mm-hmm. and and wanting to have audiences feel that from my performances. So when I was in 
forces of nature, dance theater, and here we go again. Nicole, same Nicole, <laughs> told me about an audition for West Side Story. Right. And that was going on a, Euro- uh, a European and Asian tour. Oh my God, what an incredible experience all over the planet on that side, all over. I went into the room and because I connected with the, the classic nature of the work, the music, the dancing, I booked the show. My first music theater audition is like, okay, I booked the show. Um, and from there it was like, well, now I don't have a choice. I have to get to Broadway. I have to. Mm. And again, that door, that, that door that, that appears, that opportunity, um, I heard about a casting call for a small workshop and I went in, it was one of the lesser used studios and there was Bill T. Jones and uh, his producer, Steve Hendel. And they said, we're thinking about doing a show about the life and music of Fela Kuti, who I did not know at the time, but boy, did I research. Oh, I jumped into it immediately. The music caught my ear right away Mm -hmm. because it sounded like, Caribbean music. Right. It was like a cousin, a cousin of Caribbean music, Afrobeat. So I go, I, I'm doing West Side Story. I'm in the ensemble. I work my ass off. I get Anita. I can't do the off-Broadway version of Dana. And I'm devastated because I know off-Broadway, eventually they will go to Broadway. But I made the choice in faith. I took a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. I said, if this show is for me, and it is for me, it will come back to me. So I went and I performed Anita. And Anita is one of those classic roles, you know, uh, Rita Moreno, um, Debbie Allen. Like, it's just played by... And this, and this was your first performance? So, this, so the, the first music theater show that I did was West Side Story. And I was in the ensemble I, first. I mean, not to cut oh, you yeah, off, but that's, that's like ahead. going from from primary school sports day to, to Usain Bolt or something. <laughs> like, well, you know, maybe, maybe, but I know the steps in between. And no, no, of, between of course you do, but I'm just saying it's, know, a, like it's a major thing. It is. And again, it's not even occurring to me as that until 2020. That hindsight, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's just like that was pretty, you know, what they call beginner's luck. But in the meantime, in between time, I am busting my ass with my dance company, um, Forces of Nature, and I quit my marketing job. I, I left that part out. Uh, when the opportunity came up, I, I resigned from marketing and promotions, and I became a full time performer. Uh, again, ignorance is bliss. I did not even in my mind, fathom the pay cut that was coming. <laughs> but yeah. because of, again, that tenacity and hard work, my technique improved being a part of this company. And so when I went into this audition, I suddenly felt ready for the dance part of it. The singing was very new. And uh, it just so happens I, I have a nice little alto voice in the pocket there. And um, sang, I think it was Happy Birthday. Because at the time, I didn't even know I needed to bring sheet music and all of that. <laughs> so they had me sing Happy Birthday, which is a setup. 
Happy birthday is a setup because it's got a big old octave, like a big jump <laughs> from one uh, one note to another in the middle there that always messes people up. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> before that, it's the happy birthday. Oh, right. That part. Right, That's right. the part where people just end up going flat. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, but uh, so, but to, to, let me get to your your point about the first show. I come off, uh, I finish a show on the road. This was in, I think it was Basel, and um, Switzerland, and I just got this feeling. I was like, I'm done. I did it. I did it for almost two years, and I'm done. Mm. And again, it was a leap of faith because I didn't have a show to come back to. But when it came to resigning our contract, I declined the offer. And I started hitting auditions. And Fela was one of those auditions. I, I don't know that there's... The words that I say to you will always pale to the feeling of getting the call that says you got it. You got it, especially when you really, really want it because you recognize it as a, as a, a powerful, that show was a powerful statement. It was a black African story about an African man using black bodies of all shapes and sizes, black music, like it was just black on black, <laughs> you know, and Broadway wasn't really doing that, certainly not utilizing an African story. There just wasn't the space for it. Wow. But they pushed, they pushed for that narrative to be told. And I was like, I have to be a part of this phenomenal performance history. And when I got the call, I just, I would say, oh, this is, this is what I, this is what I say to the kids. This is what I say to the kids when they ask me questions like this. I say, I felt like I exploded into a thousand pieces of confetti. Oh. It just was like, poof, just joy and, and fear and, and, and excitement and, and trepidation and all of it at once because, you know, you got that little imposter syndrome that's like, ooh, am I going to be able to do this and I'm going to be able to hold my ground? Man, it, it was a fantastic feeling. But boy, was it a lot of work. A lot of work. Broadway is exhausting. Eight shows a week. Two on Saturday, two on Sunday. You're normally missing weddings, dinners, birthday parties, confirmation, booths. <laughs> because you are on stage when everybody's off from work. They're coming to see you perform. Exactly. So it's this joy that is then tempered with all the work you have to do. But I, I, I'm telling you, the words do not suffice. So I'll leave you with that. My very first Broadway offer, Fela on Broadway, that was me. I burst into a thousand pieces of confetti. And then it happened again when the union said I could keep my contract. <laughs> so you, can you imagine that ebb and flow, that joy, and then that absolute feeling like, of detriment, like I'm going to lose this thing, this dream is being pulled from my hands, and I would not let it go. Oh God, I clung. Works so I hard clung. This happens. Yes, I clung. I clung. I clung, and and luckily, um, I was able to retain that contract, and I put in the work 
I put in the work and I made myself a valuable asset to the show. And that is really just about coming in with a sense of humility and doing what is asked of you by your director and choreographer with respect. And also because this work was so unique, we also needed to approach that approach that with a sense of authenticity because it's a story that is an African story and we didn't want it watered down. I had to be a part of that. I, I mean, had to be. So I, I, that, that first, that first show was just, wow, phenomenal. <laughs> the, feeling, the, feeling, the feeling was phenomenal. It was absolute electricity that surged through me just hearing that you got it. Fantastic. So, Anika, I want you to tell me here, give me a brief description of each of the things I'm about to say. Number one, SpongeBob SquarePants. Joyous, comedic, where I learned to laugh at myself and where I was given the space to heal emotionally and physically after my spinal surgery. Oh. Mm. And and you guys won a Tony Award for that one. We did. We were actually up for a number of awards, but it was a tough season, and um, we only ended up winning one. But that's really what matters. Of course. Not only does your name get called, but you get that call up to the stage. And the same with Fela. Mm. When we, we, you know, we won uh, three, three at that time. We were nominated for 11 and we won three. Wow. If they were braver, we would have learned. If we were around now with all this Wakanda and Black Panther and all this kind of stuff, man, listen, <laughs> we would win every, every award in the book. But they were less, less brave then. <clears throat> read, read, <clears throat> racist. Anyway... Ooh, ah, ooh. <laughs> but 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 SpongeBob was fantastic. It was one of those shows I was I had to take a year off from because of the surgery. And when my agent came to me with that as an offer, I did not want the show. I wanted uh, because this was 2016. Trump had come into power. All these marches and 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 protests. Not to mention the murder of black people in the street due to police brutality. And I just felt like, oh my God, the next show I do, you know, it's got to say something. It's got to be like... In Spongebob, you know, wasn't black it? Black power, right? I was like, it's got black power. So when my agent came with that, I, I was just like, no, nah, no thanks. Now, which is a bold move because Spongebob is a huge brand and um, I hadn't been working for a year. <laughs> So you like so, so you were so, like who lives know, in a like, pineapple under the sea? So well, actually, no. I told my agent I didn't want to do it. Oh, and then he called me back and he said, "Well, if this helps, you don't have to audition." Word. So I have a mentor. His name is Chuck Cooper, mm-hmm. a fantastic veteran of the Broadway stage, Tony Award winner. We did another show called Amazing Grace together. I called. Mr. Cooper, and I said, you have been doing this for so long. I'm certain you've been in this situation before. Can you help me with making a decision? And he did a fantastic pros, pros, cons exercise with me. 
which seems kind of obvious, but with his guidance, there was a lot of clarity. You know, if I gave an answer that was roundabout and vague, he would be like, let's get more specific. And when it came down to it, the pros outweighed, outweighed the cons. And I decided to do the show. Hmm. And at the end of our conversation, he goes, okay, I am very proud of you. You've made this decision. Uh, I wish you all the success in the show. And he goes, just so you know, my daughter is also in that show. Oh, <laughs> look at that. And, I had, and, I, and I, what I loved is that he saved that for the end. He didn't use it as a reason for me to do the show. He absolutely wanted it to be my decision based on the facts. Hmm. This was a sh- I didn't have to audition for it. It's a huge brand. When was my last show, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And I was like, I have to do it. And little did I know I was walking into a space of so much joy, humor. The people in this cast were so funny. And I'm one of these people that take themselves too serious. I take myself way too serious. And so it was just a space of laughter. The choreographer knows my work. I'd worked with him before. And he came to me and he said to me, if there's something you cannot do, you tell me. I will protect you. That don't happen. That don't happen. Normally, they will work you into the ground and then replace you. <laughs> so, listen, again, I'm not trying to, you know, put sugar on top of, I don't know, whatever. I'm just trying to keep it real. Right, right, But he right, protected right. me. And so I was in a space of joy and protection. And as it turns out, the director, Tina Lando, is so brilliant that she used the silhouette of SpongeBob to talk about some really important things. And it highlighted a way to me to bridge hard conversations for children. So it spoke to xenophobia. It spoke to not trusting your government. It spoke to when a natural disaster happens or a pandemic happens. And you absolutely have to change your entire life in order to survive it. Survive, yeah. It speaks to science as the way, an important part of conversation to finding solutions. It was just, it spoke to the, the importance of the feminine. It spoke to the importance of varied and inclusive bodies on stage. It was just really, really bright, but quietly so, without wagging its finger at the audience mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right so it's like it's like okay bikini bottom has to survive this this volcano <laughs> that's the that's the gist and it sounds so ridiculous like why why is this on broadway <laughs> why is this on broadway but tina lando being a brilliant director we as uh, at our talkbacks we would talk about when someone is not um from where you're from what feelings do that evoke? You know, conversations about a lack of trust in government, conversations about the environment, conversations about, you know, women in STEM or just women's presence and stepping into their power in general. It was just, I, I would have been, I would have been devastated to not have participated in it. So I'm very, very fortunate to have a mentor like Chuck Cooper to help talk me through those types of decisions. Indeed. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Uh, unfortunate shortcoming. 
had good intentions, had the groundwork for an important uh, conversation, and lost that battle to uh, creative disagreement and a lack of understanding of the history. So all that is me saying the the overall experience in creating the work and being in the room, I was even brought in as assistant choreographer to help with uh, an African dance portion of the show. And the, the choreographer in particular had some brilliant, brilliant ideas. And so Amazing Grace is the story of John Newton. Mm-hmm. I hope I got that right. <laughs> I hope I got that right. So the story of John Newton, and he wrote... Wrote the hymn. He wrote Amazing Grace. He actually wrote the poem that would become the hymn. And he was a slave trader that eventually became an abolitionist. Yes. So that dash in between eventually became, it's like when you listen to Amazing Grace and you understand that that is the story, you understand why he uses the word amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Because he has right there, they're like, writing from his hand about what he did on these ships Mm. or what he saw on these ships, right? And I think what happened was there was really beautiful music in the show and that became more urgent than the content of the show itself and speaking to that disgraceful and uh, tormented institution that was slavery. I mean, it did. But it's one of those shows like when 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 you see it, you appreciate like the music, the costumes, the 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 singing, the talent. But the story can be problematic for some fractions of the um, audience, and and that 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 was unfortunate because the show held so much potential, so much potential, and that's important. That that part. That aspect of, of um, shows that fail or don't do well, uh, they're so important to your career as a performer uh, because, it's, again, it's one of those things that teaches you. Your audiences, they want to feel, again, authenticity. And audiences tend to, especially in music theater, they tend to kind of feel when I think it's, it's not quite right. And you on stage, you can feel that trepidation from your audience. So it's just important in terms of you thinking about, okay, when I create a vision, who am I speaking to through my content? And that's going to help you improve your art. It, it is. It's going to help you improve your art. Indeed. In fact, I think it's, it, it is said that people learn a lot more from their failures than their successes. Oh, that's for sure. That is for sure. Tell us about Violet. Violet. Moving, gripping, heartbreaking, incredible creative team. Mm. This team including included Brian Crawley as its writer, Janine Tesori as its music director. Oh gosh, I may be remembering these um titles incorrectly, but and Jeffrey Page as uh, 
choreographer or, or for this particular show, uh, uh, yes, movement choreographer. And he, Jeffrey, brought me on to be his assistant. And the talent in the room, Rima Webb, Anastasia McCleskey, Sutton Foster, Josh Henry. I mean, these are people, when they open their mouths to sing, you just are taken to a whole other dimension. And this particular story was about a woman whose face gets disfigured and as a child and as she grows up, uh, she becomes like kind of obsessed with these revival people thinking that they can heal her. And it's really the story of her bus journey from leaving her home state to go to this revival because she wants to be, she wants to be healed. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and along the way, she meets a, a, a black soldier played by Joshua Henry. And they have some really poignant exchanges about, you know, being a person who's disfigured or being a person who is uh, a black, uh, 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 who is a black soldier, right? Um, and it's set in the, if I'm remembering correctly, the late 60s, I believe. Very, very moving story. And in the end, of course, her face isn't healed, but what she finds is love and her authentic self because she comes into this conversation with, uh, like, the ghost of her father, right? About why did this, you know, why did this thing happen? And all of his hardness and all of his, all of his cruelty and, 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 and all of his sadness. And um, it's one of those shows that's really about rooting. Like, what's the root cause of what you're facing? And a lot of times, when we're dealing with emotions, trials, tribulations, we don't root. We don't really want to go to the root of the thing because it's so painful. Right. So one of the reasons I described it as heartbreaking is because the show itself, it, it, it roots out and... Um, and it's gutting, but then very satisfying in the end. So that was an exceptionally, um, I was on the other side of the table for that experience. I was not a cast member. I was assistant to the choreographer. And that was an incredible experience, seeing that type of talent being directed, being choreographed on, uh, looking at their worst ethics. That's, I mean, that's, it's like these master classes every day. And that was my experience being in the room with people like Sutton Foster and uh, Joshua Henry. And you got they are just brilliant at their at their craft, and you get to soak that up. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you you touched on West Side Story already, but you yeah. know, in speaking to our mutual friend Nicole De Weaver, yes, who, who is a part of the Planet Thirty family. Um, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> and she seems to have had a life-changing experience um, being involved in Fella. What did Fella mean to you in your life? Again, it's one of those answers where the words pale in comparison to the experience. So here I am, a Caribbean woman growing up in mainly uh, a, a Black population 
where I am empowered by that blackness without even knowing that's happening. My teachers are black, people in parliament are black, the leaders and presidents of the country are black, the you know, business owner, my teachers, school friends, right? For the most part, Grenada is about 98% um, African-descended people. Mm. And so I am in my blackness and I love my blackness and that's where my power lies. When I got to Fela, I recognized because Fela's conversation was that he did not appreciate his Africanness until he came to America and he got exposed to like the Black Power Movement. And then he realized, like, I can't just sing love songs. I this is where my power lies. It's in my voice and in my music. And then he created the genre of basically protest song in Afrobeat. And that I mean that stuck with me. I was like, you know, it's so true. It took me coming to the United States of America to really just embrace, love, hold on to my blackness. Well, it's, al- it's almost a defense mechanism and necessary, right? In the Caribbean, when you're surrounded by, you know, people, African people, it's like, eh, this is normal. It's normal. It's normalized, which I think is a very powerful thing. Again, that's that hindsight. That's where you study. It's normalized that your black your blackness does not have to be marginalized. That's where I come from. That's why I'm constantly stepping into spaces and realizing, oh, Y'all are surprised to see me. I'm not surprised to be here, but you all are surprised to see me. Hi, hello, my name is Onika, and I am here. Right. Right? Haircut and all. Haircut and all. And I think that's because that really has to do, that's why I'm telling you the, the story about university where I felt so untethered. It was because I was kind of trying to become something else. When all my power was already rooted in the, the... the cultural existence of who I am that happens to be a tapestry that is mainly black. Black culture. It's not marginalized, it's celebrated, it's uplifted. Mm-hmm. For the most part. That's a whole other conversation uh, podcast we can have <laughs> about colonialism and how that impacts us Woo! as a people. But for the most part, that blackness was so innate that I didn't recognize it even as power. And I'm here for it. I'm here for it. My conversation with African-Americans is travel, man, travel. Go to these other countries and see black existence in something outside of America. Do it. Yes. It will empower you. And I think that for Fela, his journey, the story on the stage was that he came into that blackness through his coming to, to this country, to America, and then realizing, oh, I can use my art in a whole, I could take it right back to Nigeria and hold it, use it in, in, in a far more powerful way. And that really resonated with me. You want to, that's, again, that's the show where I was like, I want to wear my natural hair. I want to wear, you know, my dots on the street. I want to wear my African garb, not because it's cool or trendy, but because it's, a, it's actually a part of who I am. It just really stitched my Caribbeanness to my African ancestry. And it just flooded me with a, 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 a 
statuesque sense of empowerment and the reason why black stories deserve a space to be told, a reason why, you know, representation matters. It, 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 it was a lot of work. It was really hard emotionally because the story itself involved a lot of uh, uh, physical attacks that happened on the family and the women who were a part of Fela's day show. So it was, it was difficult emotional and certainly difficult physically. It was exhausting physically. But when you want to talk about like stepping into my blackness and understanding it as something that is so very powerful, so very beautiful, so very human. That just, it took me to a whole other place of maturity, a whole other place of, of the, again, it's back to the beginning, living my authentic life mm. and living with my authentic self. Very, very empowering. The powerful play, Fila. Now, on your social media, uh, a couple, a few weeks ago, you said a phrase that um, I chuckled at, but it was so mm-hmm. deep. You said, find your waistline. Mm-hmm. Find your waistline. Now, That's speak right. to us about the connection between soca, dance, hall, reggae, you know, Caribbean music and African mm-hmm. dance and African mu- music. What is the connection? Yeah. Well, certainly, soccer, dance hall, reggae, all of it, they are the descendants, right, of African movement and African music. They are the survivors of a trade and a practice that attempted to completely devalue and steal the culture of the other. Mm. So, uh, enslaved Africans, kidnapped, tortured, enslaved Africans, they had their language taken away, they were specifically put in groups where they couldn't understand each other, they had their hairstyles taken away, hairstyles were a way of identifying um, tribe, land, Uh, they certainly had their music. The drums were considered evil, right? And the movement, that movement that defines you, you know, as woman or man, whether it is a deep, grounded step into a rhythm that you feel through your whole body or whether it is the rotation of that waistline to indicate, you know, uh, reception and and reproductive capability and beauty and not even don't let don't even talk about our figures the way that we are shaped and when i think about soca specifically soca but certainly other forms of caribbean music calypso dancehall reggae folk music too that it should be cherished because it is the indication of a 
people that survived something that was supposed to kill them. Ooh. That it was it was so a part of us that even when they took it away in one way, what we could remember, what we could hold on to, and you see this in our food, you see this in the way we dress, you see this in the way we talk, the way we interact, the way we lime, you see this. It is an insistent and, and tenacious and unfettered determination to hold on to something that was attempted, that, that else attempted to take from you. And when we came up with those forms, what else did was devalue it. Oh, well, that's okay. This is what the natives do. This is what this is, you know, this is what the locals do. This is their little folk dance. This is their little folk story. This is their very rhythmic calypso. You know, it, 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 it's, oh, but it's not the piano. It's not the violin. It's not. And all forms of art have their place but an impact. But when you see you need to devalue, devalue, steal and destroy culture in order to uplift your own as better, you failed. Hmm. You failed. You, you, you failed humanity. You might win in terms of making your thing feel more grandiose. So ballet, you know, ballet belongs at, 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 at Lincoln Center, you know. But why can't we create space at Lincoln Center? for soca dance and music because rewinding that's where your power lies <laughs> find your waistline find find that rotation and understand like there's a reason why yoga and traditional african dance has a lot of that rotation it has it, it's about moving the blood through your body it's about you know instead of standing up there clenched and you know contorting your body into into shapes that they're technically not made for it. it looks beautiful, but it can destroy you. Mm. So until we start, we start adding value back, and when you start respecting the the music of the Caribbean, not as marginalized or little. I mean, start respecting it as the very remnants of something that was tra- that 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 initially we were not supposed to be even. To ever hold on to, when you start recognizing it as that, then you, I mean, you, you will always want to uplift that culture. I understand that, that the, the carnival culture comes with the conversation on the skimpiness of the costumes, the cost of, of, of participation, all of it. I get it. I totally get it. But that to me is, is, a, is a whole separate conversation from the, fact that in the first place we need to uplift these genres of music as valuable and essential and as absolute evidence of survival of something that was supposed to be wiped from the face of the planet we did that we did that and until we start understanding that that this is what we have done in spite of despite or any other thing you want to say we have done and we do it all the time. It's there, it's certainly there in hip hop. In terms of art, black people tend to create something out of nothing. We are gods 
That's what God does. Create something out of nothing. And if we devalue that power, then we are absolutely, I mean, we are lost. Mm. We are lost. If we, if we devalue it to the point that a piano is more important than a djembe, right, or a, a composition uh, by so-and-so is more Im- important than Kitchener's very hilarious and, and, and important conversation on political happenings through song and wordplay, that's what Shakespeare did. If you could uplift Shakespeare, you could uplift Kitchener. Indeed, I agree. So, you know, I said, that's what, and so when I said sign your waistline, the other thing too is to gentrification into these cultures, into soca, into, into Afrobeats, into African dance. It's all meant well. It is all with good intention. But if we let it slip from our fingers and be taken on by others who it doesn't belong to, it will get distorted. The history and the actual physical movement and music, it will get distorted. What what say you to the critics that are from and in the Caribbean? Who discouraged Caribbean dance and whining and walking up? Because you you speak about the dumbing down and the the devaluing the, the of the dance and the music, but some mm-hmm. unfortunately, it has gotten to some of our Caribbean people, especially the elders. Absolutely, and that is all rooted in colonization. Yes. That, listen to me. Where where the absolute power of colonization lives is in psychological warfare. Indeed. Right? If that 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 is that is still winning up to now. So proximity to whiteness and what whiteness looks at, what whiteness accepts and what whiteness rejects is like this this stick, this measuring stick. It's like, okay, so if I stand closer to this whiteness, I am actually better. That's that is a colonization of the mind. And I get it. The infiltration, the hard infiltration of religion. So, I mean, the minute you start to roll your weight, oh my God, it's sexual and you want a man to do this and you, you, you know, you've, you've lost respect for yourself. But I'm saying if instead we educate our children on the beauty of it, they themselves will be able to change the over-sexualization of it. <laughs> because the culture is over is like over sexualized and it's almost like you almost cannot help it in the modern world sexualization is what gets you likes and followers and clicks and 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 so on and so forth so i again these conversations are very nuanced and they need to happen on various tiers but that thing where old people are like no carnival is not worth nothing that is not their fault. That is something that was planted. Ingrained. Yes, through colonialization and through religious practice. Mm-hmm. Religious practice. So, so I get it, but I'm always happy to have a conversation with people because this thing about token and certainly about carnival is with joy that it in 
spews into people. And the thing about black existence, especially in an American context, is that black joy is often stolen or marginalized, like pushed to the sidelines. Okay, you get you're getting forward a joy and then call it a day. Right? Yeah, yeah. But but when you have an expression where you're like, Oh my gosh, the flag make for me, the anthem make for me, the music make for me, the food, the way I talk to my friend, it's made for me. It's not about, uh, uh, you, you can eliminate that whole measuring stick and, and proximity to whiteness. And it matters. The way you talk about it matters. When I'm teaching, if I'm teaching a little soccer class to these children, I'm not telling them, why grind, carry on and get on. That's not <laughs> what I'm talking to them about. Right? I'm, in, I'm having a conversation with them about the bridge from African movement to Caribbean movement. And why it is essential is that it, it, it's a representation of our very survival. And more than that, our absolute determination to overcome and be bigger than this thing that, that this practice, this slave trade, where the intent was to work you to death. We're still here. We, don't, we, do, we do not get that. Hmm. Wherever we are, we don't get that. that we are still here. We weren't supposed to be where we are. That's right. <laughs> and that's why the music is important. It's not supposed to be, but it's here. How, but how do you, how do you, it, how do you begin to... And it resonates in us. Indeed. Go ahead. How do you begin to change that narrative? I mean, you said you, you're willing to have conversations with older people, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But how do you begin mm -hmm. to change that? Because it's trickled down even into governments where governments pay no attention to the arts, especially arts yeah. when the arts when yeah. it comes from the Caribbean. It's almost as yeah. if as a, as a West Indian artist, a Caribbean artist, you have to go to the great north and then come back, and then they'll say, oh, yep. this is yep. our person from the North. Yes. It's like no, nothing has really changed since I left, but I'm, yes. I'm now presented as yeah. I'm sexier yeah. now. <laughs> well, I think, too, we, uh, it's, a, it's a very layered conversation, but, for example, when you, especially with government, if you're thinking about the economics of it all, you know, what is the contribution of art to you know, the GDP of the islands. And if it's not that much, it's very hard for them to put a, to hold value to it, right? On top of that, it's thought of, thought of as, as trivial, uh, depending, right? If you, if you study in piano, that might be something, and you get accepted to um, Boston Conservatory or something, then it's like, whoa, look at, you know, our person from the Caribbean that plays the piano so well. That's, that's all fantastic. But we need to have, have start having the conversations about why is that upheld and what is ours and what we create is not. And that's only, that to me is going to have to happen just like everything, all these protests about, uh, you know, regarding Black Lives Matter and regarding the history of America. We need to start having a different conversation or shifting the perspective of the way we talk about history and how that makes us evaluate and 
give value to what is ours now. Because if you have that conversation about history under the context of not trying to be closer to whiteness, but the fact that we are a people so powerful that we are here, then suddenly soccer takes on a whole different energy. Because I'm thinking of it every time I step into it and I and I move to it, I'm saying to myself, yo, this this wasn't even supposed to be a thing. But we created it. Like steel pan. Pan wasn't who was going and look at that oil drum and figure that could make music. Right. When we start we it's really about the way the context and way in which we have these historical conversations and certainly the way we talk about art as it relates to historical conversations. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy thing to do, but I feel that these movements are happening across the planet, right? That, sh- that call about Black Lives Matter, it's, it's, it's not just an American conversation. It is blackness and what blackness creates, it matters. Mm. And art is a, is, a, is a huge part of that. <laughs> oh my God, what is music without black people? <laughs> so I'm not saying that it's an easy conversation, but I am saying that... It's a necessary are, conversation. Are, are, it is. My generation and, and, and uh, those coming after me, the way that we engage about what is ours, we need to shift the language. Mm. It's not little. It's not that small thing. It's not, you know, it, it, it's not. It's a form of art that we have created just from memory, genetic memory, from what pulses through us. Right? Yes, I know. The walking up can get very concerning. The nakedness can get very, it can make people feel very uncomfortable. But for the most part, carnivals come and go as joyous events. As a place where people feel, and particularly black people, feel a sense of relief and relief that the rest of the year does not afford them. Hmm. We, can't, we, we, we cannot take that away from ourselves. We do ourselves an injustice and we basically just continue that psychological warfare without the other, even in the conversation. Mm. Mm. You see what I'm mm. saying? Like, we, it, it, it's about the way we have the conversation about it. Onika, Soka Saturdays. You use your yes. platform to, pl- to promote social justice as well. Yes. Um, yes. And not many people do that. It's very brave of you, of course. And um, I shouldn't even be saying brave. We live in a time... When this should be normal. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Just think of it as a a necessity uh, and not something particularly unique. Art, art as protest Mm -hmm. is not new. Art as protest is not new. And this is just completely and totally stitched to the conversation about adding value back. Because these are black entities. Soka, Dantol. It's black entities that come from mainly black cultures. I'm speaking very broadly and, and generally here. 
So if you're talking about something that matters, those genres matter. Step into it. Claim it. Uplift it. Let it it empower you by creating a sense of joy and freedom because a sense of joy and freedom makes you very bold. It steps up your your boldness. So um, when I say using it as a form of, of, of social justice, what I'm saying is if you feel, and like, you know, the narrative in America is black is disadvantaged, <clears throat> uh, wealth gap, uh, lack of access, uh, living below the poverty line, etc. If we keep, if we only listen to those narratives, again, that's the psychological warfare because then you start to feel of lesser value. Mm-hmm. But if I can pull you into our class and have your body stretch and work and sweat and feel joy and feel beautiful and feel like, oh, yes, black people created this? Dope. Let's create more. Then now now you're doing a type of protest. It doesn't look like going in the street and pumping your fist. That's an important part of it. But an essential part of it for me is the reclaiming and the upliftment of our art forms. Ibsen's Dollhouse and Jermaine Rose's Children of the Blue Mountain. You yes. were a part of both. Tell me the impo- yes. what is the importance of creatives from the Caribbean uh, using their platforms to promote Caribbean art? It is absolutely essential. Again, it is part of that conversation of, of adding value back. Make the space. Make the space. You are a creator. Write the thing. Uh, create the thing, paint the thing, and stand in it with your Caribbeanness. So, um, Children of the Blue Mountains, Jermaine Rose show. You know, it uses some of the folklore, some of the so- folk song, and puts it on a quote unquote bigger stage. When now it can reach even more people. But what is not lost is the human story. And that's the thing. There's a lack, to me, a lack of empathy for what is black. That's part of the psychological warfare. A lack of empathy means you dehumanize. Right? If you can use art to humanize the people on stage, and I realized, well, it doesn't matter what color I am. I understand sadness. I understand joy. I understand heartbreak. I understand frustration. It just so happens that story is being used uh, through Caribbean genre. Then let's do it. It's a human story. There's not so much disconnect that and, and, and if an audience sits there and watches the show, that they don't, that they don't get it. We have the power to do that. And because, again, because we come from the culture, part of our training is how do we stitch so that it's appealing to as many audiences as possible outside of tourists coming to see a half-hour show at the hotel. Hmm. We can do that. 
Mm-hmm. And we have to do that. And I think it's, I think that what uh, what Mr. Rhodes did in terms of taking just music and a, 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 almost like a, a Nyabingi pulse and and having that be the heartbeat through his show, I didn't feel that I was necessarily doing something Caribbean. I was, but I felt like it was something that was human and that it would resonate with as many audiences as, as possible. And that's what we have to do. We have to realize it doesn't have to sit um, in a basket looking one way because all these other stories, um, Dracula, Red Riding Hood, uh, all these things, these are, these are, you know, Caucasian folklore that, that now have become stories that stand the test of time. Right. We have that. We have it. But again, it's regulated to, oh, there's some, there's a ghost story your, your grandmother telling you so you don't get jumpy inside your house. And, and and a lot of it is also oral, right? It's not written, and that and that that again prevents it from spreading mm-hmm. the way it mm-hmm. ought. Yeah, which is why again it's important to understand the like Caribbeanness and Africanness as as surviving, and right. and it's here, and so it's worth writing down. It's worth turning it into a narrative that looks like song, dance, uh, play, books, painting, photography. We Now, the world is our oyster in how to create and how to hold on to those stories or make up your own. This I is want... the other thing we don't, we don't give ourselves room to do. Make it up. I do not have to be relegated to the history. If I want to be living in a, a, a castle in the jungle of the Sahara, <laughs> I could do that. Mm-hmm. I can make that up. Oh, the Sahara has no jungles and there weren't any castles in blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Again, that is where power, audacity, and privilege lies. When you can make it the hell up yep. and have people take it on. So we have to start doing that. So no, nobody, nobody told nobody, you, nobody told George nobody Lucas. Nobody told us that you could, and that's why I love my childhood because people constantly told me that I could. Yes, indeed. Right? There's power in so, that. There is so much power. There's power in po- power and possibility. Oh, well, you know, you know that that at that time, black people didn't wear blah blah blah. I don't care because I can make it up. That, do you see how much power is in that? Yeah, of course. And being able to decide, here's a story, don't make no sense historically, but I'm going to write it. There's power and possibility. Oh my God, the possibilities that open up when you move yourself out the box and say, oh, I'm going to create a unique story that that my life has been influenced by because of my Caribbean culture or because of my any culture. I'm going to make it up and I'm going to make it human. And I'm going to make it appealing, and I'm going to make it resonate with people, whether they're from there or not. That is powerful. Onika, seventeen seventy six. Does that does this play take on new meaning in the context of our times? One hundred percent and absolutely, and it's it's one of those things where 
what is it? Art imitates life, imitates art. <laughs> um, so 1776 is a musical written in the 60s about the founding of the country. It was tacitly, very quietly, uh, also a bit of a protest about the Vietnam War. Uh, but mainly, it speaks to the creation and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And what people don't know is that the original document included a clause to end the slave trade. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote this clause, right. uh, the owner of hundreds of enslaved people. And then there was a big debate, as Congress does, about why this clause needed to be excluded. And the main conversation, of course, was um, economic. So it was taken out, right? And it was the first time Congress agreed that it was the first time that a unanimous decision was needed. This idea of seeking independence from the crown, I mean, that was treason, right? So in, the, in their own way, even though they're painted and drawn and shown, the founding fathers are shown very stoic and like uh, put together and whatever. These were young men, young men for the most part, at, on an average, they were quite young and making a decision to break from the crowd. The problem is it creates the original sin of America in its process and this idea of history as myth and legend versus history as fact. Mm -hmm. So most people won't learn that the original Declaration of Independence included a clause about ending slavery and then it's removed, right? Uh, so that in itself is an indication of these quiet shifts and changes that now iconicize periods in history as something to be proud of. When in fact, they're absolutely flawed and full of contradictions. So, to mess with that even more, the director has tasked the show with uh, women and transgender uh, persons. Wow. So, uh, women and transgender persons of all color, shapes and sizes, ages, will be playing the founding fathers. And why that becomes important is because when they use the words that those men used, and you see it coming from a certain body, it impacts the way you listen to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, if, if 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 you're seeing all men are created equal, and it's a woman standing there saying it, you see a, you see you actually see the flaw. <laughs> First of all, this statement didn't include women, and second of all, it was referring to very specific men, particularly white land-owning men. So even poor white men were yes. not really included in, in that conversation. So this is going to be a hell of a task because 
you're asking audiences to come to a revival that in fact is kind of remixed, not so much revived. It really, the intent is to shift the game, not to punish. This is what we say. Shift the game to the way you take on history. Not in order to punish anyone, but to start discussing history in its truth. Right. Because so much of it becomes these big moments of iconicizing, you know, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and so on and so forth. Like, it, it, it becomes these, like, almost godlike men. Mythical. When, in fact, there were men of their time making the mistakes of their time and not even understanding how it carries forth into the history. Into, the, into what would become history. So I can't wait to do this work. I cannot wait for the criticism. And I mean that genuinely. Because part of making people understand why representation matters is understanding that so much of history, and American history especially, is about wiping out the narratives of other people in order to iconicize their own. That's why Native Americans are pushing back. That's why Black Americans are pushing back. That's why the world is pushing back. Because everybody can look at their history and realize, oh, shoot, that was done here too. Right. Some of those mistakes were made here too. So I have more of a voice and more of a history than is actually ever taught. These things aren't taught. And so what you do, what happens when you don't teach something in full is one set of people feel quite empowered and free and another feel very, and others feel very disadvantaged or silent. So this is an attempt to talk about that flawed history coming from the voices of least expected players and how that manages to shift the conversation of that said history. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really quite excited because this whole conversation about Black Lives Matter is not just a statement pertinent to, you know, 2016 through 2020. It, it, it has to do with the fact that the history of the country makes us feel as though black lives have no value. And that's reflected today in the way black people are treated, for example, by the police or by the justice system. Mm. Because those that psychological warfare and those old stereotypes and those biases are deeply ingrained. And not just in white people. No. Right? Not just in white people. So it, it, to me, that's why it's important. It's not just about, it, it is certainly about the future and, and the future of black population, but it also is a door towards being very specific about the history that has us here today. And much of that has to do with the fact that the slave trade was 
allowed to go on after the founding of the country. Literally built on the backs of enslaved black people. Mm-hmm. Tell me, Onika, how does Broadway move on after COVID or during COVID? I mean, I, I, if I had the answer to that question, my friend, I would be a superstar. <laughs> and what I mean by that is theater needs an audience. Theater needs an, uh, to be on stage and off stage. And once all of those spaces are compromised, you don't have theater. Or, and, or, you have to innovate. Right. You have to come up with new ways of presenting work. Now, a lot of that has been happening, say, via readings on Zoom, right? It's not the same for musical, and it's not for musicals, because singing on Zoom is almost damn near impossible. <laughs> and dancing is almost impossible. And what I mean by that is because everyone is using different bandwidth, signals get received at different times and and voices will go off there and 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 not be in time with the rhythm. Everything would have to be pre recorded, everything. In order for it to sync up. Oh. So I send you a demo, you sing to that demo, and then you submit it back to me, and then I edit it, and I put it in, which is what you see. So any of these shows that are like, oh, here's a song from our show, and everybody's singing, and it seems like so on time and perfect, it's all pre-recorded. It's not live. I never thought about yeah, that. It's live. No, it's, you, you, you sing it, because, you know, you, I mean, you, you're in radio, so you understand, right? Bandwidth and signal strength yeah, affects how, how fast or slow, I'm receiving information. Right. So, I think that it will take considerable innovation that is inclusive of a lot of tech. A lot of tech. It will be maybe even, I don't know if you saw the new production of the newest West Side Story, but they do this incredible balance between live theater and almost like drive-in where they where they project huge images of the actors so that you can get really into their space and space while they're on stage so it's almost like okay if we're going to be asking people to come it might be we create in different spaces it's edited and then sold to an entity and that entity has like a drive-in type um, presentation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That's just that's just like one idea, but that that change, that takes away the live conversation and the fact that live theater is you know slightly different every night because you don't know if somebody's gonna roll over on their ankle or forget a line or have to sneeze in the middle of a song or all the things that make that moment to moment really exciting. We got a lot of of very, very deep things to consider. And I mean, we call I, it... I, I just hope it gets solved so soon. We have, be, we have to be creative. I just hope it gets solved, you know, soon because personally, I am missing live art. 
Yeah, well, exactly, exactly. And then, and even art has been so essential to people in their spaces. But after a while, like your fifth invitation to a Zoom reading, and you're like, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you you just, something that there is a, because I can't reach through the screen, there is a blunting of the energy that is normally shared in a live space. Same with like music and concerts. Right. That energy of like 500, 3,000, 80,000 people cheering, that, I mean, that changes lives. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that heals people. And so we need... We, we Virtual need concerts we just aren't the same. They are not the same. And and the, the one thing that's going to, probably with certainty, is, is a viable vaccine. Um... But even with so many people who have a lot of trepidation about that in itself. And unless they really figure out, ah, this is, this is what this thing is, because they're still figuring it out. Every day I hear a, 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 a conversation on Cohen. I listened to a Fauci, uh, a Dr. Fauci interview the other day, and pretty much he was like, we don't know. I mean, if you really strip that podcast down, it's like, Dr. Fauci, what do you know about Corona? And his answer is like, we don't know. Wow. At the end of, of, if you strip it down completely naked. So I can't, I, in my mind, I, I do think the, the unions are going to have to start seriously thinking about virtual representation, um, virtual presentation and allowing union members to do that on their new types of like virtual contracts. Um, and then conversations about pre-recording a presentation on, you know, large screen outdoor spaces or something like that. But in terms of what we know CH to be coming into the space, sitting, opening your program, you know, jumping up at the end and clapping enthusiastically, it's, it, it will be, it will be a while because this thing's just so transmissible and dangerous mm-hmm. that it doesn't take much for us to come together and be enthusiastically clapping and yelling bravo for droplets to be everywhere. Yeah, indeed. But it's quite dire. It's quite dire. It's quite, quite abysmal. <laughs> but... Something has to happen. Something will give. Mm. Something will give. The when, though, is more more precarious. Yeah. When that happens, that just don't know. Is there a production that you really, really want to be in? One that you haven't been in as yet? Because of its impact on my life, if I could do a production of Jesus Christ Superstar, uh... uh I would do, I, I, I would do it. I love the music. Now, that's because it was one of, like, three musicals that we had in the house. I think it was Jesus Christ of the Star, My Fair Lady, and something else. I don't remember which one. But The King and Die. I, <laughs> not King and I. I think it was Two for Tea or something. Or the, the, the musical that, oh, Meet Me in St. Louis or something like that. I, it's not enough. But, but. That is that is less so because of the creative content and more because of the the impact of that 
of seeing that on video uh, as a young person and understanding how to use vocals and acting and and incredible dancing and the energy of cast and ensembles to create something that moves people for ages. So it would be it would be a brilliant production of Jesus Christ in the Dark. There have been some not so brilliant ones, mm. but uh, from a from a nostalgic standpoint, um, I would say Jesus Christ in the Dark. It's from a creative standpoint and uh, a currently uh, running show, currently as in would have been a part of this Broadway season, uh, Hades Town, mm. uh, which takes a, 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 a Greek classic and uh, modernizes it uh, to talk about love and struggle, uh, relationship, humanity. Um, I would love to be in that show. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to accomplish within dance? Like outside, maybe outside of theater, I don't know. Uh, choreographing music videos or, you know? You know what? On the conversation of Soka, I will say this. The other day, I was like, is there such a thing as a conceptual designer for music videos? Because that is something I think where I can take my storytelling talent and my... Uh, dance talent and sort of create this position that is about oh you're the idea person for the video right what does this look like storyboarding it and so on so in terms of dance I'm so I'm really interested in the marriage of storytelling to uh, music video creation but specifically specifically for Caribbean music right um, because I look, I listen to some songs, and in my mind's eye, I could see a vision for it play out. So I was like, that has to be a thing. So maybe music video director, then creative, creative design. So it's not necessarily directing, but the art, the art, the art, um, the storyboarding of it, right? Right? So, so in the end, this is the story we were trying to tell. It moves to this scene, it, it, it segues to that face of black hair come up on this but you know what i mean like i i would love well, to well, with that um, you're, you're pretty much conceptual design. <laughs> but there's also the art director as well so so maybe that <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to call it a, a conceptual designer conceptual <laughs> but but other than that as my relationship with jan- with dance evolves um as my body ages I definitely would like to write more. So it's wonderful speaking with a writer. And that same conversation, that's why that conversation of just make it up is important to me as a form of power. Yes. Uh, because I feel like there are all these stories that live in me, um, but aspects of my life that I can, you know, turn into metaphors uh, or even the story of Corona. Like, how do you make that into a fairy tale? Mm. Right, and um, I'm really, really keen on just taking some of, like, if I'm standing, if I'm walking home at night in Grenada, and I look to the left, and the palm trees are blowing a certain way, can I create a story there? 
can I create a story in those shadows because those palm trees exist, because that Caribbean breeze is blowing? Can I create a story there that holds international intrigue? I would love to write fantasy, fairy tale type stories with a Caribbean base. That'd be awesome. That is my that that's my that's my goal. Um, I, a, a really wonderful friend of mine, Marsha Messiah, started the Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Fest last year. Uh-huh. Really brilliant program. Um, and I also she's another person that you can interview. Where uh, it, I think like the tagline is beyond the carnival, and this idea that we have so many writers. But again, they're relegated to these corners and shelves. And she wants to highlight and bring forward and create space for Caribbean writers and Caribbean narratives. It's such a brilliant program. And last year, uh, in the inaugural, uh, at the inaugural event, she had a short writers competition that she encouraged me to enter into. And I was shortlisted. Um, which was really exciting for me. Awesome. So I I felt that thing of like, yes, gosh, you could do this. You know, if I could sit down with a five-year-old and make up a little story, then I can write it. Right? Now, I respect the process of writing. I know it is an art form. I know there are theories and strategies and ways of writing to create a successful novel or play or whatever. Um, but I don't think that that should deter me from this idea of being a Caribbean voice that tells Caribbean stories that gain international appeal. Understood. Now, <laughs> you went from Grenada through A levels, uh, because many in many success, when you hear success stories from, you know, the Caribbean is oh, you know, I left when I was five, I left when I was nine. So many Caribbean uh, children, or even from around the world, they feel as if well, maybe had I left the Caribbean earlier, I would have been successful. But now here mm-hmm. you are, having mm-hmm. left, you know, in your late teens. Mm-hmm. And born and raised, born and definitely raised, and you're mm-hmm. a success story. What advice do you have for anyone in any other part of the world that wishes to aspire and attain the heights that you have? What are some of the fundamental things that they should pay attention to or do in their lives to in in order to prepare themselves for the great beyond? So I think I'm going to put this in three three bullet points. Okay. Uh, let's call it practicing your skills, being exceptionally determined, and doing that as your authentic self. Mm-hmm. So practice, practice. You have something you think you want to do it. And in, listen, in this day and age, in this day and age, the opportunity of coming into free information and 
and a way of being taught without having to pay too much. That exists today. So you want some, you want to learn uh, to play the violin. Uh, you want to be an actor. You want to, there's so much information out there. Now, do you need to sift and research and so that you feel like you are getting good information? Certainly. But that is part of the dedication to the craft. So dedication to the craft, putting in the hours, that whole conversation on 10,000 hours. Right? Did you see the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary? I did. I did. So, okay. So when you you want to talk about someone that puts in the time and practice, that is the sort of that's the sort of focus you need to have. Right. So practice your skills, hone your craft, determination is there's no doing it without it. You have to be tenacious. You have to be audacious. And you have to, if you're stepping into a space, you have to make sure that you are confident enough and determined enough to be in that space and in that room. There's so Just make people see your value. Make people see your value. And that comes by bringing into the room all those hours of honed practice and rehearsal. And because now, when you stand in that confidence, now you can go on to point three and be your most authentic self. You don't necessarily have to dumb down your accent. You don't have to shy away from your blackness. You can stand confidently in who you are because you're backed by an authenticity and by being good at your craft. Awesome. And it all it starts with practice, and not just lots of practice, but good practice. Good practice, because there's a lot of bad practice. <laughs> you know, you can learn to do something, and you do it for hours and, do it and the hours. Wrong way. Realize <laughs> you've been doing it the wrong way, right? But that that conversation on putting in the hours and then backing it with with tremendous tenacity and determination that that that's always. That is going to open doors. After that, it has to do, when I did the O-Levels, my father gave me a plaque. Look, people must be tired of hearing me say this, but I'm saying it anyway. Father gave me a plaque that said, excellence is one thing, maintenance is another. Mm. And at first I was like, huh? Like, you can't just hug me and tell me congratulations? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it took so long for me to get it, which is, okay, Again, that's a success. Achieving excellence on any tail, whether it's graduation from kindergarten or earning your PhD. Attaining of excellence is fantastic. The question is, what do you do after that? How do you maintain it? Right? How do you maintain that excellence? So this is a conversation that I'm always having with myself when I'm tired and I don't want to do it and I figure that put in the hours and I'm just... Like, I never want to walk into another theater or I'm, I'm just that tired. I, th- these, are the, these are the kinds of, of, of conversations I have with myself. Like, okay, this level of excellence, do you want to maintain it or surpass it? And what is that going to take? That's always the conversation you're having with yourself. Always the confirmation, conversation. And can you do that? Can you move to the next level, being your 
authentic self, not selling out yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's, 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 it's no joke. It's the lights and the applause, man, they, it makes it look so desirable. But people die pursuing their dreams. They do. You know, they die pursuing their dreams. Um, I'm not the biggest advocate of do what you love and you won't work a day in your life. I actually feel like you work harder. It's just that that hard work is far more rewarding. It's far more rewarding. If you love something, if you're passionate about something, the amount of work that you put into it is those hours. Is that 10,000 hours thing. You will work harder at it than ever. But it's worth it because you want to do it. That is where you had to put in them hours and you really want that ish. That's death. And a lot of people are living that life. But if you're going to step out of that box, no, you have to work your ass off. You have to work your tail off. There's some of us that get quite lucky. I was walking down the street singing a song and a producer heard me and now I'm a superstar. Right? That doesn't happen. And regardless, the conversation of the maintaining of excellence is still in the mix. You don't want to be a one-hit wonder. You want to have a legacy. And having a legacy takes an incredible amount of work. Hmm. So good luck, guys! <laughs> so good luck, guys! <laughs> it can be done. It can be done. Yeah. I got three rapid-fire questions for you. Um, one category. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we here go. We go. Favorite soca song? Right now, uh, No Tomorrow by Kerwin Dubois. Favorite reggae song? Oh, um, Chronics. Uh, oh! Skanky? Uh, no. Uh, oh, shoot. Is it sm- I think it's Smile Jamaica. I think it's Chronics. It's a Chronics tune. It's just me. Next. <laughs> uh, favorite, favorite dance hall song? Old school or new school? Doesn't matter. Uh, I will... Always love Patra. Patra. Queen queen of the pack? Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, it's my uh, quote-unquote favorite, only because Patra was so ahead of her time. Wasn't you she, though? Know? Like she, she stepped into her womanness and sexuality and her boldness. And, so anytime I see the video, I'm like, yo, Patra was just leading the pack, queen of the pack. This is, you know... This is who she was. But in terms of like enjoyment and like to throw you back in a, in a, like to put you in a frenzy of remembering from back in the day, I, I love, um, Trailer Lot of Girls. Mm. Love that too. Good girls, girls every day. From London, Canada, and the USA. Good girls every day. I love it. <laughs> I want to see that rhythm come in and you do a hard bogle or, you know. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. What's the next big thing for Onika Phillips? It would have to be winning my own Tony Award or an international golfer. So that, in terms of the answer to your question, like, I, I, ideal goals. You said an international right? tour? No, an international bestseller. Oh, bestseller, okay. A novel, yes, yes. But in terms of the here and now, the next big thing for me is getting 1776 up 
and running once all this COVID madness mm. is put in its place. So you are, j- just for clarification, you are you are a, pro- a producer on the show? Nope. Nope. I should be. <laughs> <laughs> if, they have, if they have space for investment, I might be able to put down a little something. I'm not a producer on the show. I'm, I'm a, an ensemble member in the cast. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you what your ultimate goals are, but you put it out there already. There you go. There you go. So, Onika, this is a segment of the interview that I call The Planet is Yours. I strap on my spacesuit and go out into outer space and float around, and I leave you on the planet alone to say whatever it is you want to say to the people. Go ahead. The floor is yours. You know, it's funny. You talk about floating into space because our solar system has one single star. One star that sustains our one planet, the only planet in our solar system on which we know life exists. There is very limited existence without that sunshine. That star is our sun. That star from which gold and platinum comes, it loves us. It loves melanated people. Uh, so much so that the universe wraps us in extra doses of that melanin so that we can revel in the solar embrace. Black people. That's that the sun loves black people. Melanated to be loved by our life-given star. Imagine that. Imagine that. And then live it. Live in in that power. Live in that power of the universe creating us with such strength and power and beauty that even our singular star loves us best. And then go out there and live your best life. Love yourself. Like yourself. Step into the spaces with a sense of purpose and joy, and protest, and and activism, and love. And you become unstoppable, indomitable. That is the message for the people. Mm, 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 mm. Naonika, how are we able to contact you? Very easy. Go to good old IG and look for Dragon Passion Fruit. <laughs> that should be enough to get you there. Dragon Passion Fruit. Uh, it is a public page, and you are welcome to see the various exploits and adventures of my life via that page. I am not on any of the other platforms, but IG is the place where my most colorful existence is shared with the world. So come check me out there. Uh huh. So take care of yourself, even within the context of COVID. Keep playing that. Absolutely. Keep playing uh, lockdown by coffee or whatever it is you choose to play. That's it. That's <laughs> the other favorite one. Mm. Lockdown by coffee and Chelsea blessed. Right? Ah, that's it. Because those those are the kind of tunes to keep your spirit up, your hope alive, 
when the face gets thin, music will always fill you with a kind of vibration to, to keep you going. So turn on the music, pump it up. Nothing but the truth. All right. Yeah, singer, soon to be novelist, dancer, yes. and obviously and obviously teacher. Okay, thank I'm you. okay with that too. Thank you so much for joining me on Planet 30. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it, it, it is an honor. And I so appreciate the space that you are giving to conversations about Caribbean existence and Caribbean narratives. It, it's really essential right now as the overall Black experience. The Caribbean conversation has to happen. So thank you so, so much. Well, thank you for being a part of the conversation. Absolutely. This is Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet 30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.